the reading uh, on which the message is based today is found in the book of Ezekiel, the book of the prophet Ezekiel, and the 22nd chapter, Ezekiel 22. When you have Ezekiel 22, we are beginning at verse 23. Verse 23. It says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they shown difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. Their princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And their prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression, and exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I saw for a man among them, that should make up the hedge, and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. Amen. We all know what a mediator is. A mediator stands in the middle of conflict and they therefore become a channel of communication between these two hostile parties and their aim is to bring peace between them. In various places in our Old Testament, we see God's people acting as mediators between the people and God. <clears throat> so, for example, Abraham stood as mediator between the people of the plains, including Sodom, between them and God, an angry God. And Abraham was trying to negotiate with God so that the people wouldn't be destroyed. Moses also pleaded uh, with God on behalf of the sinful people. Uh, God had outlined his intention to destroy the people for their idolatry. But because of Moses' intervention, 
the people were spared. We even see Aaron. Aaron uh, stood as intercessor for the Hebrew people. And in his successfully making a case to God for mercy, many people uh, were saved from a dreadful plague. When we use words like mediator or intercessor, a little flag is raised in the minds of many believers. Their thoughts are automatically directed towards the one who, was, who is the greatest mediator ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who placed himself between an angry God and sinful people. And he made peace. What I'd like, I'd like firstly today to, to consider this passage um, before then moving on to say something about that mediator role of Christ. And then I intend to wind it up by speaking for a short while about the intercession of the Christian uh, to God. So firstly then, it, there was no man. You saw that in the text, there was no man. So we entered the scriptures there at quite troubling times. The people had become estranged from God. They'd started to do things their own way. They'd been oppressing vulnerable people. They treated sacred things as if they were profane. God, as you know, had from time to time raised up prophets to communicate to the people. Uh, so through the mouthpieces of the, all these prophets we know, the Lord had reminded the people of the consequences, the grave consequences of making God their enemy. Now Ezekiel, of course, is one such prophet. He's passed on warnings to the people. He's engaged in all sorts of theatrical uh, communications of God's message. Uh, all about the doom which was coming their way. Now Ezekiel isn't a mediator in the sense that we are considering it today. This isn't a case here of saying to the people, repent or be destroyed. That might be the normal message. But that window of repentance is gone. At this point, the message now is that destruction is coming. And there's nothing that can be done about it. What a woeful situation. God has already punished the people. The lands have been invaded. Many people have been taken away into slavery. And some of the people, if you read through Ezekiel, some of the people left genuinely think that they've they, they paid a fair price now. Enough is enough. God, they soon found, was to pile judgment upon judgment upon judgment. So what are, are the kinds of things that the, well, that have incensed the Lord? Well, we read some of them. The prophets are lying to the people. God's prophets lying to the people. People are being killed. Uh, the worship of God has become corrupted. And there is widespread corruption robbery and so on the horror of what god did to those people is reflected in the language that he uses 
through Ezekiel. If you look back to verse uh, 20, you look back at verse 20 there. <clears throat> the Lord saying, as, as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, so will I gather you in mine anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. I will melt you. And he did. And even though we have access, folks, to the scriptures, we cannot appreciate just how extreme their punishment was. Before God brought uh, even greater calamity on the people, that included the, the destruction of their beloved temple as well. He tells them that there had been an escape route. If you like, God reminded them that had there been this one difference, disaster could have been avoided. We find that in verse 30. Verse 30, 31, we read, And I sought, this is God speaking, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out my wrath, my indignation upon them. God sought a man a man to intercede with him just like Moses and those others had done. Just one person, just one person to make a case to God for mercy. Out of that huge population, there was not one. It's almost unbelievable how widespread this disease of sin had become. Just not one man. It reminded me, it's not connected as such but it reminded me of this scene in the book of Revelation I was caused to remember this, this scene in um, Revelation 5 uh, at the beginning it says and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof and no man heaven or in earth neither under the earth was able to open the book neither look upon neither to look thereon and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book neither to look thereon God through an angel there sought a man just one worthy individual no there was not one uh, so there there was no one righteous enough to open this book. And here in Ezekiel, now, no one is humble enough to pray to God. The picture, as you noted, involves a hedge. So you may, we associate hedges normally with things that make your front garden look nicer, perhaps. But hedges, if they are thick enough, are made of the right type of... Uh, is the right type of a plant. Well, they can be used as a protective boundary around properties. 
And if a gap, if a gap is found in that hedge, then predators can make their way in. And maybe people can come in and uh, steal and destroy things. And so what's needed in this picture anyway, what's needed is someone to, to stand in that gap and to take responsibility and do whatever is necessary to keep the danger away. And this is how God is using the imagery. God himself is the predator. He is the threat. You get it? He intends to devour the people. And his way in is through that gap. Now, a normal attacker, a normal say a soldier or a raider or even a, a, an animal, would obviously want the gap to be kept open. The last thing they want is for someone to be in the way. But with God, it's different. He's giving his victims an opportunity to be spared. So, if you like, before making his way through the gap with the sword that he has drawn, he pauses there and he gives time, as it were, for someone to, to step forward and engage with him. Now, even though such a man would be utterly incapable anyway of repelling any sort of invasion by God, the Lord hints at this sweet mercy that if there had been such a man, the wrath of God against the entire nation would have been averted. And I say that because in verse 31, God uses the word, therefore. He says, I poured out my indignation on them because no one asked me to stop. God sought a man and found none. Not one person cared enough to humble themselves and pray and seek God's face for mercy. So in verse 31, Therefore, for that reason have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. I said we talk about Christ. So the man, this is my second point, the man Christ Jesus now all, we, all these uh, pictures we see in the Bible where God stands ready to pour out his, his fury on the people, these are little uh, microcosms of a much bigger judgment. Mankind is sinful, as you, as you well know. We are sinful, as you well know. And even uh, any figure you care to admire from church history it was also racked with this problem of sin. This universal sinfulness, it, it exists under the oversight of an all-holy God. And this God is the lawgiver and he is also the judge. And taken together, those things result in mankind being guilty. There is universal guilt. Now, by guilt, I don't mean feeling guilty. I mean actual legal guilt. And that great 
lawgiver and judge declares they all must be punished. We're not to think that God merely decided that the best thing to do would be to punish them. It was by virtue of his very nature that God had to punish them. His nature demands that he punishes sin. Well, let's see, let's see how this uh, situation in Ezekiel compares with this worldwide conflict between man and God. Well, at the, the very heart of God's purpose in the history of man and in all the ages which are to follow is the salvation of his elect people. Before there was a cosmos, there was a God. A trinity of persons making up one God. And a purpose was created. A purpose. And God's purpose was this. Out of the race of beings which God was about to create in his own image, a certain proportion were to receive the special and everlasting favour of God. Now, although every one of them, us, every one of them would join in the sinful habits of the rest of mankind, in due time, God would extract them. Now, the picture, that, picture I've described in Ezekiel is, is um, it's an oversimplification uh, because the language is, is, is figurative. So, it exists there to make an important point about just how extensive sin was. We're not supposed to think that God was at some point waiting around and trying to find someone who would intercede on the people's behalf. We're not meant to build a theology in that way from this sort of language but it does its job it makes the point and no one here would deny the universal nature of sin in the world but in the picture God portrays himself as pausing pausing while he sought a man to stand in the gap That's there. In the gospel, in the gospel, we find a far more mysterious arrangement of God's. Because in the gospel, something unbelievable happened. It's because, I say that because God, the one who stands ready to invade humanity and utterly destroy it, is also the one that stands in the gap. He's the one who stands in the gap as well. Now, Jesus, I've found, is often portrayed in, well, in certain churches, Jesus is often portrayed as the, as the sort of the nice guy in the Trinity, which is just, uh, which thinking and teaching is, is faulty and it's, it's awful. People need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is going to have billions of people thrown into a lake of fire. That's the truth of it. 
but but because uh, because of this, it's it's quite proper for us to speak about God being both the aggressor and the peacemaker at the same time. Well, let's for a minute put aside imagery and analogy and see this clear fact: God must exact punishment on sinners, and no man can stop it. No man can stop it. No persuasive argument will do. No case can be made which is strong enough to do away with the need for justice. It wasn't so much, theologically, it wasn't so much that God sought a man to stand in the gap for sinful mankind. God became man to stand in the gap. Now you may think this is a bit strange, speaking of God saving us from himself, but that is the essence of the gospel. How did Christ save sinners? We can think of it in two aspects, a sacrifice and a, a priesthood. So, Firstly, we've mentioned this sacrifice, so we know the Son of God took on human form. The, that is, the Word became flesh. And he placed himself into the hands of wicked men to be killed. And in that truly awful event at Calvary, Christ Jesus there took responsibility for all the sins of all God's elect throughout all time. So his death saves, but secondly, there's his everlasting intercession for us in the very presence of God in what they call, what the Bible calls the most holy place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Mm. So this great sacrificial lamb has become now the great high priest. And it's the sacrifice of himself that enables him to take on the high priestly role in the halls of heaven. He stands, if you like, holding out a bowl, a bowl of his own shed blood. And this is, it's like a perpetual reminder to God of the atonement that he accomplished. And if it were ever possible, for God's anger towards a saved person to inflame again, if it were possible, then the sight of that vessel would immediately placate him. The sight of that vessel representing the death of Christ would placate him. I want to add a detail to my description of the gospel. And I'm going to go back and use the description of the hedge again. And if you prefer it, you can think of the, that gap being uh, 
uh, a breach in the walls of a castle. It's the same. It's the same idea. Christ's role as sacrifice and as an intercessor is effectual. Right. So I mean that everyone he stood in the gap for is guaranteed eternal salvation. Now, there are uh, good Christian folk, friends of mine, brothers, who believe otherwise. But in my mind, I cannot accept that Christ could stand in the gap for the whole human race, only for the majority of them to be brought to eternal ruin. Now, I don't want to go into it, all that, but I, I will say this with, with a fair degree of confidence, that we must not dissociate the, um, the sacrifice from the intercession. So, uh, as I see it, all who Christ elected were atoned for, and all who were atoned for uh, were are interceded for and all who are interceded for will be delivered that's how I see it I say, I say I say then that this whole work of Christ from start to finish will at the last day be found to have been 100% successful the land if you like which Christ stands in the gap for, that land is inhabited by God's elect alone. He assuaged and will forever assuage the fury of God against those people. And that, friends, is their eternal security. Well, here's my, here's my third point. It's that God seeks people today. God seeks people today. Now, you, you who are disciples of Christ today, and I'm convinced many here are, uh, the, one, the people I know anyway, some of you I don't know. But you who are disciples, you have been delivered from Satan's prison, released into society to do God's bidding. And we don't have to guess about what he wants us to do. Most certainly he wants us to be uh, witnesses for him in this world. Witnesses. He also wants us to pray. He wants us to pray for the salvation of others. I'm confident he likes, likes to hear us pray for them. You might say then... You might say God is looking for a man to stand in the gap. He's seeking men and women who will make up the hedge for the people of this world. But you might be thinking, hang on brother, five minutes ago you said uh, no one was worthy to stand in the gap except Christ. Only he can save sinners. Well, yeah, it's different. We can't save sinners. But we do personally know a man who can. And so we use that. We make use of what Christ has done. When we take the gospel to, to people. Now we know the Lamb of God 
gave his life for an innumerable company of people. But God refuses to tell us who they are. We might think it would be great if he did, if we had some sort of holy radar and we could scan the crowds and we could hone in on, on one of God's elect and waste no time, get in there and reel, reel him in. Um, how much easier our evangelism would be. But, but we don't know. We don't know those things and that's the way God would have it. And so we are to witness indiscriminately in this world and then stand back and see the salvation of God as he just he leads his elect people out of the world into that net of the, the gospel. And that person, they become aware of the gulf between themselves, of God, the, the, the heights of God's glory versus the depth of their own vileness. And, and they're, they're shocked. They are shocked by it. They have revealed to them, through the scriptures, just a mere hint of the eternal tribulation, which is due to them because of their chaotic rebellion against God. And then they hear about Christ Jesus, the one who came into this world to save sinners. They're encouraged to go to God in prayer, surrender to him. And beg God to apply all those merits of Calvary to their case. And soon enough, as God continues to work in them, soon enough they experience a Holy Spirit entrance into their soul. And everything that comes with that, such as peace and love. Joy, a hope, an assurance of the hope of a resurrection to eternal life. Man loves sin. Well, that should be self-evident. As I said to you before, brethren, there's, there's enough sin in you and me. But there's, there's plenty more outside as well. Man loves sin. They love it. But the real child of God doesn't have a casual attitude. The real child of God does not have a casual attitude to sin. They hate their sin. They hate it. Primarily in themselves, not, not other people. They hate it in themselves. But they have that advocate. God's people, we, we go to him constantly bemoaning our sin and pleading the forgiveness of Christ and begging God to cleanse them afresh and in coming to the Father in the name of Christ it, it's as if it's as if we are referring the Father to, to that blood again it's if we're pointing to the blood as if God needs reminding but we refer God to the blood that's what we do when we come in the name of Christ. And so incredibly. We get forgiveness again. For sins we've committed thousands of times. And we get a cleansed conscience. What a great God. What a merciful and loving God we serve. The world though. 
The world outside has no such advocate. And they love sin. They love sin. And if nothing changes, if nothing changes, then the fire of God's holiness will one day break out and utterly consume them. But these people won't stop. They won't stop. Since the dawn of time when man discovered fire, men have observed that certain insects are attracted to the, to the fire. We know now they're attracted to the light rather than to the, to the flame, uh, rather than the heat, if you like. And you might like to imagine Martin Luther, and he's sitting at his desk, and he has a candle. And he'd have seen... Um, He'd have seen moths, moths coming in. I don't like moths much, but these moths, they, they come in and they, he would have seen them perhaps swirling round chaotically and make their way towards that candle flame. And the more attracted they were, the more dangerous it got for them. And even as they, even as they got close to the flame and they felt the heat of it, they didn't stop. The heat, was, the heat was getting more intense, but they, still they wouldn't stop. And our brother Martin would have no doubt watched as they circled their way in, in those little orbits, until they destroyed themselves. And so the very thing that the moth wanted was the cause of their destruction. And so the natural man is attracted to sin. Barring a divine work of salvation, which, praise God, many of us here have experienced, all the warnings from God's people will be ignored. All your warnings will be ignored. Even though we declare they're getting closer and closer to their own destruction, they just continue. They continue on. But I said to you, God has determined to save some. And he's ordained that we should have the great privilege of playing a part in the ingathering of souls. I've already mentioned the evangelistic efforts of the church. But having done all, we still know, don't we, that... An act of God is needed for people to be saved. And so we pray. We pray for people. We witness and then we pray. When God now says he seeks a man or woman to stand in the gap, he means you. He means you. He wants you to intercede for the people you know and the people you don't know. If you don't mind the... If you don't mind my... Uh, language here, uh, God wants you to try to stop him. He wants you to make an effort in prayer to persuade him to turn from the evil that he intends towards the people and instead save them. He wants you to stand in that gap. He wants you to stand in the gap, raise your arms to heaven and say, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. 
Now, we've no shortage of people to pray for. I'm confident there's not one person here who doesn't pray for friends and family. You might not pray for all of them, but you do pray. We love them. We love them enough to approach God in prayer and bring along their names with us. Bring their names and, and, and mention each one to God. They, they have no idea. They, friends and family, they have no idea of just how massive this is. That their names are being announced in the, the courts of God and being heard by God. Their very names. Well, we pray for those who don't like us as well. I'm sure none of you have anyone who don't like you. I've had a few. Maybe I need to work on that. But some of us have people who just don't, just don't, I just don't like the way he does this or the way he says that. It might be outright enemies. It might be friends who've turned against you because of your profession. And you, you may find, brethren, that the more zealous you are, the more likely they are to want to keep a distance from you. God forbid you may have children who resent you. How heartbreaking. Your children you brought up resenting you because of your faith. Well, they can't stop us loving them. <laughs> they can't stop us doing that. And because we love them, we continue to pray for them, whether they like it or not. Now, we don't live in ancient Israel. We don't exist in a sort of uh, covenant nation like that. So our plea with God is different. We don't, we don't, we don't say, Lord, um, have mercy on the people of, uh, of Britain as if they were his chosen nation. It doesn't have a chosen nation. But, but we can still pray for the people in the world around us. We can do that. People we don't know. People in our street. Uh, we can pray for our community. We can expand it out and pray, yes, for the nation. That God would have mercy on the nation. That is a good prayer to pray. When we say, uh, pray for the nation. Uh, to some people, it sounds uh, nationalistic. Well, I'm not going to say anything, make a case one way or the other for those nationalist ideas. Uh, I stick to what I know. The Apostle Paul is clear. Uh, he did have special feelings for the people of his own nation. It wasn't uh, even a purely sort of racial uh, affinity that he had for them because there would be strangers and foreigners within the nation being embraced by the nation and God tells them to treat the foreigner the alien like in the same way as everyone else but certainly there was a body of people where Paul came from and he felt this affinity for them and, he, and Paul tells us that he prayed for those he saw as his people. It is, it is, uh, I think the phrase is, my, my kinsmen according to the flesh, is how he put it. 
Now, primarily his identity was as a member of the family of God. That is unquestionable. <clears throat> but we live in this world and God has put us into certain places and we may, if we want, describe ourselves in multiple ways. I think of myself, for example, as a member of the human race. I also think of myself as British and Scouser, you know. If someone's roots were in, if someone's roots were in Africa, it would be quite proper for them to have a special burden for the black African. That is okay. In fact, that burden for the people among whom God has placed them is a beautiful thing. If someone's roots are in Africa and they have no particular burden for African people more than anyone else, that's also fine. That's fine as well. Their prayers will be different, but they will still be beautiful to God. Some people pray specifically for Jewish people. Some people pray specifically for uh, people in jail or farmers or something. All those people are standing in the gap pleading for the eternal well-being of other people. Well, all I have to say now is that God, as I said, is looking for intercessors today. So is that you, friend? Is that you? Now, I know you pray for others, but do you pray for them often? Do you pray? Do you pray at least sometimes just to get it out of the way rather than relishing praying for people? Do your prayers for the lost stem from mere duty or from a sincere love for them? Plenty of people say their prayers. God is seeking men and women to stand in the gap. Are you that person, friend? Are you that intercessor? I pray to God today that he would burden every one of you and me and equip us to frequently and fervently turn our faces to God in prayer and make that cry from the heart, Lord God, for those people in wrath, remember mercy. Amen. Amen. Amen.